today in our Sinners and Saints series that we're doing through the summer, um, somebody wrote in that I should talk about the angel who comforted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane specifically. And um, I'm going to read that text in just a minute. It's in Luke 22, 41 to 44. And uh, it'll be helpful to read that text, and then you'll see what I was thinking as I was, as I was uh, sort of preparing tonight and deciding that I'm going to talk more generally on angels than just on this specific angel, and, and I'll maybe be able to explain myself after we see it. So it's Luke 22, 41 to 44, just gives us a snapshot. Jesus in the garden before his crucifixion says, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So now as I read that, and I began to think about it, I realized a few things. First of all, that it would be difficult to speak a great deal about this particular angel, because we're not told which angel it is. So I don't know. So I can't expand on that too much. And even if I were to speak on this particular angel, there'd be a lot of foundational information missing because the third thing is, is the doctrine of angels is very seldom, if ever, preached and not very well understood. And so as I looked at this, I realized that I've sat in church since I was born, pretty much. And I did a little bit of math, and that's well over 2,000 sermons. And I've personally preached about 500 sermons, and I've never heard or preached a sermon on angels ever in my whole life. And so I thought, you know what, I need to maybe not preach as much tonight as teach. So I've been trying to get better as a preacher. I'm going back to being a teacher. And we're going to do some teaching tonight on angels and just find out the doctrine of angels. Who are angels? What are angels? What, what are their, what's their function? So that we can understand when we come across them in the text all the things that angels are to us and what, how God is using angels. And as I looked into that, I myself became surprised because it is much like in this story, in this account. You know, Jesus in the garden and you're thinking of the disciples praying for him and he goes and tells them to stay awake and, and you think about uh, him sweating the great drops of blood and you think about uh, all the things that take place in the garden afterwards with the with the Roman soldiers and all of those things, and, and there's just this one little line, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and then the story moves on. And I realize that throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, actually, angels appear far too many times for me to have gone my whole life and not heard a sermon on angels. And they appear like this. We forget that an angel occurs and appears to almost every major figure that you encounter in the Bible. An angel is present at almost every major event in the Bible. An angel instigates almost every pronouncement of God in the Bible. They literally show up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And maybe it's the fault of us being Baptists, but we rarely ever talk about angels. And I just found, as I, as I studied this, that there is just an incredible amount of encouragement that I think is here for us if we understand the doctrine, which is just a fancy word for the truth, the, the, the scriptural truths about angels. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to tonight just do a quick survey of the nature of angels, their number, their power, their names, their appearances, and all of those things. And then we're going to, after that, look into the activity of angels, what it is they do, what purpose they have, how they relate to us today as Christians in God's church. And I hope that, like me, you'll be encouraged by what we find in scripture teaching us about angels who 
are present almost everywhere in every book, almost every chapter, but who seem to just sort of disappear into the background as they do the work of God. So let's look at angels. The Hebrew word, we'll start with the nature of angels. The Hebrew word that is used commonly in the Old Testament, malak, and the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, angelos, uh, they both just mean messenger. It's the same word that's used to describe human beings that are also messengers. It's a common name given to angels, and, and messenger is part of what they do. But uh, we don't want to, and we will soon see that angels are much more than just messengers. They're often messengers, but they're much, much, much more than just messengers. And we don't want the, the, the name or the term that's used to constrain them too much. And so I'm going to fairly quickly cover some general ideas of the nature of angels, and I will have to go quickly because this is basically a doctrine of angels in 30 minutes. Well, say 35 minutes. And uh, I'm going to camp on a few important things along the way, but there will be just a list of things that, and, 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 and scriptures that we're going to look at. But the first one that's important for us to remember and that we want to never forget is that angels are, in their nature, created beings. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, 3 to 4. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited superior to theirs. And so I'm going to come back to this a bit later, but we just want to differentiate between Jesus, who is God, and angels. Jesus is superior to angels. His identity, his authority, in every regard, Jesus is superior to angels. He's not an angel. He's God. And Hebrews 1.5 goes on. It says, For to which of the angels, asking rhetorically, did God ever say, You are my son, today I've, I've become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. So, so the writer of Hebrews wants to distinguish and say Jesus and angels are not the same thing. And then in Colossians, we see it very clearly. It says, For in him, being Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, which, by the way, are all metaphors or ways of saying angels, spiritual beings. All things have been created through him and for him. So visible and invisible, we think of angels as invisible, the spiritual world. All things have been created by Jesus. Angels are created beings. Now, why do I draw attention to this very first point? Is because if you're out there, you'll probably have heard that the Jehovah Witnesses and other sort of people like that teach that Jesus was an angel of some sort. Some of the Jehovah Witnesses would say that he was specifically Michael, who appeared as Jesus or who now is Jesus, has been elevated to become Jesus. And yet we see the Bible here is very clear. The scripture teaches that Jesus is higher than the angels and, in fact, that Jesus created the angels. And so Jesus can't also be an angel if he created the angels. And we worship the creator, not the created. It's important that we remember that. And you could go to Romans 1 for more on that. Angels were created beings as embodied spirits sometime before man. We don't know when angels were created, but they were created before we arrived on the scene, before God created us. And we see lots of descriptions of them in terms of their nature. In Genesis, in Daniel, in Ezekiel, in Revelation, in Isaiah, we have all these different descriptions described in various physical ways. But at the same time, Hebrews 1.14 and other places calls them spirits. So they inhabit a spiritual body, but still bodies. Maybe bodies that are similar to 
our non-perishable body, which we will inherit, like Jesus inhabits now, a body that's physical but also spiritual. They can appear in the form of human beings. In Genesis 18, they appear to Abraham, even sitting and eating with him in 18.8. In Hebrews 13.2, it says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So the nature of angels is that they can appear as humans. They can appear fully natural to us so that we don't even realize that they're there. Going more into their form, we can see that there's two different kinds of angels. There's the elect. 1 Timothy 5.21 talks about the angels which are elect. And then there's the non-elect. Matthew 25.41, Jesus refers to the devil and his angels. And in Revelations 12.6 and 7, there's a war in heaven and Michael is fighting against the dragon and his angels. Today I'm only going to talk about the good angels. Okay, We're not talking about the bad angels today, but there's two kinds of angels out there. We would say angels and demons. We're just talking about the elect angels. We're talking about the good angels today. But we have to understand that in the spiritual realm, there are these two forces at work. They are by no means equal, but there are two forces at work. Angels seem genderless. Luke 20, 35 to 36 talks about the fact that when we are in heaven, we are no longer given in marriage because we are like angels. And we see that angels are always referred to with the masculine pronoun. And whenever we get to, a little bit later, the two individual angels that we do know by name in Scripture, both are named and portrayed as males, or at the very least, genderless. And so angels don't seem to have a gender. Angels are deathless. In the same text in Luke 20:36, it says that believers who will take part in the age to come can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So it seems like angels can't die. They're eternal spirits, the same way that we're eternal. They're not, they're eternal from the point of creation forward. They're not eternal like God is eternal, but they are deathless. Their status, angels are, as I mentioned, inferior to Jesus. Hebrews 1, 4 to 5 says that they're inferior to Jesus. Jesus is superior to the angels, but they are superior to mankind. Psalm 8, 5 says that you have made him, that's man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And so angels are lower than Jesus, but higher than man. There's a lot of mystery about that because Paul says later on that we're actually going to judge angels in the age to come. And I didn't even get into what that means. There's lots of mystery we're going to run into. But regarding their status, an important piece here is that they are not to be worshipped. And most importantly here, we need to remember that angels are incredibly popular in culture. And I mentioned the Jehovah Witness, and I, there's other denominations, and there's other sects, and there's other cults out there that worship angels, or that establish a certain priority or status to angels that isn't biblically warranted. In fact, even the New Age movement, which is interesting, because the New Age movement sort of picks and chooses from all over the place, and you go into a Christian bookstore, quote-unquote, and you go to that kind of not-so-Christian section of the Christian bookstore, and you start going down the line of the books there, and you start looking at the different angels and what their domains are and what their principalities are and who they should be praying to and whether you can you know, find out the name of your guardian angel. And we're going to talk about guardian angels in just a minute, but you know, the, the, there's this whole fascination about angels, which is extra-scriptural. It's not what comes from the Bible. And so we have to be careful. It gets to the point where there's worship. And it, it may be the reason why the writer of Hebrews was making it clear that Jesus was different from the angels because maybe he was speaking to a group in the church that was struggling with this and that were giving too much regard to angels ahead of Jesus. 
But it's clear that angels are not to be worshipped. Jesus isn't an angel. Jesus is God. Angels are created beings. They act on behalf of God, but they're not God. And in addition to that distinction, we see Paul saying very clearly in Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with out reason by his sensuous mind. And so Paul identifies here to the church in Colossians that there's this group of Christians that are caught up in this weird sort of visions and ecstaticism and the worship of angels. And he says, don't let them lead you astray. We're not to worship angels. And this fascination still in our culture with angels and what they could possibly mean to us and what honor or respect we should give them. But if you look in Scripture, you see that they never ask for that. They are, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, they, angels are always receding into the background to serve God and put all the attention on God's revelation and on God's glory and on God's purposes. John Calvin said, even in his day, a great deal of nonsense has been written about angels. And I think it's probably still true today. But we see this perhaps most clearly right from the mouth of an angel himself, how angels view their own status and how we as God's children are to treat them. The, the Apostle John in Revelation is overcome with the majesty of the various visions that he was being revealed to him. And this angel was speaking to him, showing him what was behind uh, the reality of this world and what was going on in heaven. And he just becomes overwhelmed. And it says in Revelation 19, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, that being the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So there's an angel telling John very specifically, stop doing that. Don't worship me. Worship God. I mean, I'm here with you now and, you know, I'm apparently giving you this revelation and you're quite overwhelmed by that, but it's not me you worship. I'm just serving God, he's the one who is worthy of your worship. They're not for our worship. Some specific names, some designations, they're called spirits, Hebrews 1.14 we're going to see, Ephesians 1.21 calls them thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, mights, First Timothy says the elect angels, Ezekiel calls them cherubim, also Genesis 34, cherubim at the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. I just have to pause here for a minute, too. If you remember in Ezekiel and in Revelation uh, 4.6, the cherubim are the ones that are at the throne of God quite often and uh, are usually described with a head like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle with four wings. The one in the Garden of Eden had a flaming sword. These are the cherubim, which is simply the plural of cherub. Has anybody seen a painting of a cherub? A little fat baby with angel wings? Yeah, of all the angels that don't look like that, cherubs are the ones that don't look like that, okay? They're flaming warrior angels with heads like oxes and lions. They don't paint them like that in Victorian era. They paint them like little fat babies with wings. Don't know where that came from? Just so you know. They're also called seraphim. What's the difference between cherubim and seraphim? I don't know, right? <laughs> Lots of speculation out there. Again, all through the church, there's been speculation. In the Middle Ages, there was a book that was written that set out nine different orders of angels. But 
there's no biblical warrant for nine different orders of angels. This is just this fascination that is here with angels and what they are and who they are and what they do and people trying to fill in things that are not actually scriptural. What I'm trying to show you tonight, and I'm just doing this first part very quickly, is just what is scriptural? What does the Bible teach us about angels? They're called the sons of God in Job 1. There's two specific names, though, apart from all these other names being spirits or seraphim or angels or cherubim, all of these things. There's Michael, the archangel. He's mentioned directly in Jude 9 and Daniel 10 and Revelations 12. And then there's Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. He's mentioned in Daniel 8.16, and it's Gabriel that brings the message to um, Mary uh, about uh, the birth of Jesus and also the message about the birth of the John the Baptist. So Gabriel is very much a, we see, is, is very much lives up to the name of messenger, and it may be that he has a special role. Maybe he's a seraphim and not a cherubim. I don't know. And then we see Michael is quite often in battle. It's Michael that rescues Gabriel, in fact, uh, when he is at war with the spirit of the prince of Persia. And Gabriel was trying to get to Daniel, and he was delayed for weeks because he was in battle with the prince of the power of Persia. And Michael had to come and do battle so that Gabriel because he's just a messenger, I guess, could get to give Daniel the message. And then he went back to join Michael in the battle. And it's Michael who battles uh, Satan himself for the body of Moses. And uh, because Satan came to try to claim Moses, and Michael rebuked him and claimed the body of Moses. And it's Michael who fights the demon uh, or the, the serpent uh, in the initial war. So we have Michael and Gabriel. They're the only two named uh, angels that we have in scripture number of, of angels again i'm just going quickly here just to sort of get your head around all the things the bible tells us about angels there's actually lots that it tells us well they're countless jesus says to his disciples when the roman guard comes to take him that he could ask for his father to have at his size 12 legions of angels that's 60,000 angels but daniel's vision he says a stream of fire issued and came from before him a thousand thousands served him that's a million and 10,000 times 10,000. It's also, it's also a million. Uh, no, that's 10,000 times 10,000. That's three, three. No, that's 100 million. That's 100 million. So it's a million, then 100 million. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. So, so we started with 60,000. Then, then Daniel said there was a million. Then he said there was 100 million. And in Revelation 5, it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth. So I don't know, how many are there? A hundred million? Many thousands of hundred millions? Thousands of millions? Are there thousands of millions? That would be billions of angels. I don't know. There's a lot of angels. Okay? There's a lot of angels. Hebrews 12:22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. So he doesn't even try to count. He says there's too many to count. So billions upon billions, I suppose. So many angels. And power. What is the power of angels? Yes, they're very powerful. Starting at the low end of the spectrum, an angel sets Peter free from prison. In Acts 12, Peter's in prison. The angel comes. There's gets him out of prison, opens the gates and all of those things. That's, that's pretty impressive, you know. It's kind of Marvel superhero movie type of thing. Jesus says he could have 60,000 angels at his side to protect him when he's in the garden when the Roman centurions come to take him. And in 2 Kings 19, we see that just one angel slew 185,000 Assyrians. 
So if one angel can kill 185,000 Assyrians and Jesus could call 60,000 angels, well, let's just say that, yes, they're powerful, to say the least. They travel quickly. They're engaged in spiritual battle against other angels. They're way more powerful than we are. That's that's just an overview to just get a glimpse of the nature of angels, what Scripture tells us about angels. They're powerful. They're messengers. They're spiritual. They, They can appear as we do. They're created. We're not to worship them. But what is their function? What do angels do? What, what's their activity and purpose? And this is just where it just, it just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper for me because, because what angels actually do in Scripture is really quite amazing. First and foremost, they worship. They spend their time worshiping. In Revelation 5, I just, I just read that text in Revelation 5. It says that he looked at the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of angels, myriads upon myriads, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. These millions of angels are spending their time worshiping God. That's what they delight in. That's what they are spending their time doing. We look at that great passage in Isaiah. The seraphim are there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah saw the same thing that John did. And look what he saw. The train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and two he covered with his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Whenever you see the throne of God, same thing in Ezekiel, when the throne of God comes and Ezekiel gets his vision of the throne of God and the angels, wheels within wheels and wings within wings around the throne of God, worshiping him. So they worship. Luke 15.10 talks about the joy that these angels have. says, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So not only are they they worshiping God, but those angels that are before the throne, when one sinner repents, those angels are worshiping. And now you think about that and you say, well, you know, how many times is a sinner repenting? Well, you know, we don't have sinners repenting and coming to Christ and we're not baptizing people who live every day. But let's just go around the world. Let's think of all the churches in the world and all the times the gospel is being preached and all the numbers that are being added to the church in China and in Russia and in Afghanistan and in South Korea and North Korea and Vietnam and South America and Africa. There's people coming to Christ all the time. You realize these, these angels are singing with joy minute by minute as thousands and thousands and thousands of people respond to the gospel and are saved. Heaven is just one big worship party of God and joy party of people who are coming into the kingdom of God. This is what scripture tells us angels are about. They're about worshiping God and they are about rejoicing over people coming to faith. Again, I go to Hebrews 12:22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's a festivity going on angels just it's just one party going on for eternity with them to worship god so they worship but 
But here's where it gets really interesting. Angels spend their time looking into the question and the mystery of our salvation. 1 Peter 1.22 says it was revealed to them, being the prophets in the Old Testament, that they were serving not themselves but you, now in the New Testament, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So I don't know when they have time to do this, but while they're worshiping God, while they're rejoicing over everybody who's coming into the faith, they are also longing to look into and are seeking out the mystery of our salvation and wondering about what it is that God is doing in the lives of these humans down here on the planet. They are mystified by what it is that God is doing. And it's not just Peter that says this. Because they spend time looking into our salvation, but they also spend time looking at us in our worship. Now this is where the mystery just gets a little deeper. 1 Corinthians 11, 10, Paul says that women should pray in the church not with their heads uncovered because of the angels. Now I'm not going to get into whether women should have their heads covered or not covered in church. We'll talk about that maybe another Sunday. But... The interesting thing that Paul says here is that the reason is because of the angels. And so this may be one of the most mysterious ones of the scriptures about angels, but we can determine in this situation, in this church, women were speaking in such a way that was uncustomary or it was disrespectful or whatever. It wasn't normal. And we talked last week about head coverings over women normally in Jewish culture. But Paul says here that these women are not acknowledging the presence of the angels as they were praying in church. Don't let that freak you out too much. But the angels are watching us as we worship. And he says it again in Ephesians 3, 9 to 10. It says in Ephesians 3, 9 to 10, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So he says here in Ephesians that right now God is revealing the mystery of his wisdom, of his grace, his mercy, his salvation through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So angels... And demons are observing the church, that's us, as we go about being gracious and merciful and forgiving and transformed by the Holy Spirit and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And God's wisdom is being made known as they observe us. They look into our salvation. They look into the mystery of God's wisdom with us. They look at us in the church. These angels are busy. This is all the scripture says that angels are doing. What else do they do? They reveal and make known God's purposes. They are messengers. And we've talked about their name being messengers. But in Genesis 18, the angels explain to Abraham the plan of Sodom. The angel of the Lord tells him not to sacrifice Isaac. Hagar is spoken to by an angel. God reveals his purposes to Jacob through angels. Gideon receives his instructions via angels. Zechariah, angel tells him about the birth of his son, is going to be John the Baptist. Um, Mary, Gabriel reveals the arrival of Jesus. Gabriel then talks to Joseph, says he shouldn't worry about Mary being pregnant then he tells joseph that he should flee to egypt then he tells joseph he should come back from egypt all of these things all of these messages all angels right we just we we forget how often angels are at work guiding us through our life what else do they do they make war they're worshipers they're messengers they're also warriors The first war they fought seems to be described in Revelations 12. The the war that arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. 
When did all this happen? I don't know, but we got angels fighting each other. They're warriors. And I mentioned Jude, Michael again, the archangel, Michael contending with the devil, disputing over the body of Moses. Right? Satan comes to claim Moses. Hey, you got a murderer there. He's mine. Right? That murderer Moses, I'm taking him. Michael says, no, he's ours. Satan, Michael fighting over the body of angels, strain over the body of Moses. Strange, don't, don't understand the mystery that's going on here. But even here, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. The archangel, when fighting Satan, says, God rebuke you. So they fight with the power of God. And again, Michael fights alongside Gabriel in Daniel 10. We talked about that. They're warriors. First Kings 19 took out the Assyrian army. Exodus, the Passover, angels are warriors as well. They, they fight on behalf of God. And in fact, visually, just on that point, I want to leave you with this visual. One of my favorite, it's a very common description of God in the Old Testament. He's called the Lord of Heavenly Hosts. Actually, Allison, you referred to this. The Lord of hosts. And you might think, what does Lord of hosts mean? Like he's the God of people who put on dinner parties? I don't understand what that's... We don't use hosts like that anymore. No, that's not what it means. He's not, he's not the God of those hosts. The hosts in Hebrew literally means armies. So when you say that, when you see the Lord of hosts or the God of hosts or Lord of heavenly hosts in English properly, in a modern English, we should say the God of angel armies. That's what they're saying every time they say that. When they say the Lord of hosts, they're saying the God of angel armies. The God of angel armies is doing this. The God of angel armies is doing that. The God of angel armies rescued us out of Egypt. The the God of angel armies is on our behalf. The, The fact that God leads this angelic army is intrinsic to his name in the Old Testament repeatedly. It's power there that is meant to be put on display. How else do they function, though? They're... They're used, angels are used by God to bless and care for God's own people. If we go back to our text in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels, the writer of Hebrews is rhetorically asking a question, which the answer is yes. They are all ministering spirits who are sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. How often do you think of that? How often did I think of this? That this God of angel armies who has all these angels who I just described, innumerable billions of them who are so powerful, who spend their time in worship and joy, who see the face of God, are sent then from there to serve for my sake. It's incredible. How do they, how do they serve us? And I'm thinking, does the Bible even explain this? And it actually does. They serve in our salvation. In Acts chapter 10, I don't have time, but you can go and read there of Cornelius. And an angel appeared. And again, you know the story of Cornelius. Do you remember that an angel appeared to Cornelius? (laughs) I mean, I know the story of Cornelius. It's one of my favorite stories. You know, it's this Greek guy that doesn't know anything about Judaism or anything else. And he he comes to know, he, he, he serves God and But an angel appears to him and basically says to him what to do in preparation for the salvation that's to come from Peter. So so this angel basically sets up Cornelius' salvation. And I think about that, and I think all the things in my life that led to my salvation, like all the weird little coincidences, all the the places I was, the books I got handed, the the place I was born, the, the situations I was in, the people that came along, is that all just coincidence? Or is it like Cornelius? Was there an angel who was sent out to minister? And notice the tense here in Hebrews. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
Not those who have inherited salvation, those who are to inherit salvation. So the Bible is basically, and then gives us an example of Cornelius. So the Bible is basically saying here that angels are actually right now serving to lead people into the situation where they're going to hear the gospel and get saved. Didn't know angels did that. But that's what they do. They give us guidance. Acts 8.26, the angel said to Philip, this is another example actually of, of guidance, but also leading to salvation. Everybody remembers the story of Philip and the, and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Do you remember that it was an angel that told Philip to go there? I forgot that. It's an angel. In Acts 8.26, it's an angel that says to Philip to arise and go south to the road from Jerusalem. It's a desert place between Jerusalem and Gaza. And when Philip gets there, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, explains to him the gospel, and baptizes him. Right? Another angel. They just keep showing up everywhere. All these stories that we think we know, we forget that there's angels behind the scenes doing all this work. Abraham, he's trying to find a wife for Isaac. He sends out his servant to find a wife for Isaac. He says to him in Genesis 24, I didn't remember this either. The Lord, the God of heaven, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. It's an angel that led Isaac to his wife. And a million other places we could go. It's always angels working to guide us. How else do they serve us? They lead us to salvation. They guide us. They cheer us. In Acts 27, 23 to 24, again, I forgot this. Paul is on a ship. He's sailing from Crete. They encounter a storm. He's shipwrecked. Everybody remembers the story of Paul being shipwrecked. He stands up in front of the crew and all the other passengers, and he says, this very night an angel stood by me and said that you will get to Rome, and all of these with you will be safe. Just angel comes along, cheers up Paul. Says, hey, it's going to be okay. Middle of a shipwreck, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. You're going to get to Rome. Everybody's going to be saved. They cheer us. How else do they serve? They serve in protecting us. And this is the, the idea of the guardian or the ministering angels. Psalm 91, 10 to 11 says, No e- evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague to come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Psalm 37, 34, 6-7 says, The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Daniel 6, 22, he's explaining how he went through the lion's den. He says, My God sent an angel and shut the mouths of the lions, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We could go on and on and on. Angels. God here promises, he says, that angels will encamp around you. Angels will guard you. And then Jesus says this very interesting thing in Luke 22. Or sorry, sorry, in Luke 22, 42, we have Jesus, where he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the angel from heaven appears and encourages and strengthens him. And then Acts 5, 17 to 20, the angels deliver the apostles out of prison. And then Acts 12, we won't read the whole account, but Peter's in prison, and he They're praying for him, and then a light shines in the prison, and the angel stood next to prison, and Peter, and he actually kicks him and wakes him up. And then he says, get up and get dressed, and the chains fall off, and Peter thinks he's still dreaming, but he follows the angel out the doors, and all of a sudden he finds himself out of prison. Now the interesting thing here is that when Peter gets back to the house where Mary and the rest are staying, they won't even open the door for him because they don't believe it's him. They actually think it's his angel. It's interesting, I never noticed that before. Well, it's not Peter, it's his angel. What do they mean, his angel, possessive pronoun? So are there personal guardian angels? That's the question that Psalms and some of these other things arise up. Matthew 18.10, 
Jesus talking about the children and using the children as an example of young Christians, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, meaning one of these ones that are young in the faith. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus says that there's angels, their angels, again, possessive pronoun, their angels in heaven. So are there guardian angels? I don't know. I don't know if we all have individual guardian angels. John Gill, Baptist pastor in the 17th century, wrote, Doubtless saints from their birth are under the care of angels. Martin Luther believed that every believer had a specific guardian angel. John Calvin did not believe that, and he's the one that said that there's lots of nonsense that's been written about angels. He didn't believe it was that specific. I I don't know what to believe about that. I'll I'll leave that to you, whether we have a specific angel that guards over us or whether it's just generally that all the angels guard over us or God sends an angel to guard over us. I, I, I know what Scripture teaches, and we don't want to go beyond what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that God is the God of angel armies and that these angel armies he sends to protect us and to guide us, to lead us to salvation, to encourage us, to defend us in this spiritual battle that we're in. What I do know is that the Bible doesn't say we can find out the name of our guardian angel or that we should pray to our guardian angel or that we should try to find out what specific realm that he's part of or whatever. Scripture has nothing to say about that and we need to stay well clear of that and only know what Scripture tells us. But what Scripture does tell us is that we are protected by God's angel armies. And then very quickly, how else are they involved in us and in God's work? They execute judgment on God's enemies. You could look in Acts 12, see the story for yourself. Herod was being worshipped as God, and Herod was allowing this worship of him from the people, and immediately an angel of the Lord smote him because he was not giving God the glory. And it says he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. It's a bad way to die. Or the judgment, the Passover in Egypt, of course, in Exodus 12. So they execute judgment on God's behalf and they function in the final judgment. Matthew 13 says, They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend him and cast them into fire. The angels will come forth and serve, sever the wicked from the good. And he shall send his angels with the sound of a trumpet and gather together his elect from the four corners of the earth. So we see here that in the end, the angels are going to serve God by taking the the wicked from the good and then gathering the elect and bringing them to God. They destroy the evil. They collect the elect. And then finally, they bring us to personal glory. In Luke 16, 22, and we, we talked about this parable actually last year when we were doing the parable series, Lazarus, the beggar at the gate, dies. It says he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. And so angels prepare us at the beginning and they lead us and guide us and protect us and then when we come to die, they're there to receive our spirit spirit and take it into paradise. And so when we come to that point of passing on to the next life, never imagine that you're coming in death to a place of loneliness or emptiness. You're carried by angels to be with Jesus, we have in this story of Lazarus. So when when I set out to start writing this a few days ago, I could not have imagined that angels did all of this. That, that, that when I looked into this, I thought, yeah, I think I pretty much understand angels. I don't understand angels. We don't understand angels. 
They serve God in so many ways, and God has sent them to serve us. We should not neglect this doctrine of angels. As we, as we read through these scriptures and, and just survey them as we have here today, it's apparent that God's angels are constantly at work. They worship, they bring revelation, they guide us into salvation, they guide us in our sanctification, they protect us, they work miracles on our behalf, they watch us individually, they marvel at God's work in our lives. We are both a marvel and a duty to them. God has set them over us, and as powerful as they are, guarding gates and taking out armies, able to wrestle with their fallen brothers, as powerful as they are, yet they are virtually invisible. They withdraw into the background and give all the glory to God. They, they don't want the glory. They want all the glory due to the Father. And so when I think of all of that, I just think how we can be enriched by spending an appropriate amount of time considering the grace of God and providing his angels for us. We can learn from their worship and their obedience, how we can worship and how we can be obedient. We can rightly understand the value of every believer that God has assigned these powerful allies to guard. I mean, think of that the next time you're harboring a grudge against a brother or sister in Christ. Oh, I'm going to get them. Yeah, well, their angel might have something to say about that. (laughs) Be careful the fights you pick. Angels are out for us. And at the same time, we also discover these deep mysteries, and we should not attempt to seek into things that are still mysteries, but only believe clear biblical teaching. This is what God teaches us about them in Scripture. They're ministering spirits of God, and they are powerful to work on our behalf. And whether we realize it or not, they are doing this for us. We may never see an angel, or just maybe we may not recognize an angel. But they are doing these things for us. The Bible tells us this is what God has sent in his angel army for them to do. They're God's revelation. They are God's help. They are God's power towards us. And they are at work in the world. And that, to me, is deeply encouraging. That God would set aside an an army of billions of angels to care for his elect. This blows me away. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. And this was such a whirlwind survey, but I just had to get my arms around everything and not even everything, but just, just what we can get our arms around and what angels are and do for us. Father, I, I, I ask forgiveness for neglecting this. I, I don't know why we sometimes are content to spend all of our time on just a handful of doctrines. Why are we content with a minimum? with just the doctrine of salvation or just the doctrine of election or just the doctrine of your sovereignty. Those are glorious doctrines and we love to spend lots of time on them. But there is so much truth in your word and a series like this this summer is meant to take us places we don't normally go. It's meant to open our hearts and our minds to things we'd never thought about maybe for years. It's meant to show us truth that we need to know. Maybe right now, tonight, this time in our lives, we need to know that your ministering spirits are guarding over us that you are for us and not against us, that you have equipped your angel armies on our behalf, that they rejoice over us, that they protect us, that they guide us, that they will bring us home to you. Father, we thank you that you have thought of everything and provided everything that we need. This is another truth that teaches us that. In Christ's name, amen.